All right, all right, all right. Good to have all of you here. Welcome to Village Church if you are new. Uh, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Really good to have you here at uh, South Surrey site, Langley North, Langley South. Awesome uh, to collectively all together make up this, uh, this amazing church. God's doing some awesome things. Uh, if you're new, um, man, uh, last year we did this tournament and the people we blessed, people you blessed uh, by your resources and your generosity have been huge. Uh, and this year we are going even bigger than that because uh, we believe Jesus gave his whole life and so we want to be generous with our resources and our funds. So we got the golf tournament this year, 2017, August 31st. So um, we need uh, 10 more uh, sponsorships. And so if you have a company uh, and you want to sponsor a hole, uh, this is the time to do it. Um, every hole has been covered except for about 9 or 10. So uh, we actually need uh, those covered off. And then, uh, and then obviously uh, you guys getting in on the dinners and the auction items. Uh, are also the, the, the big thing that we need. We need those experiences or those, those things that people can bid on. Um, that's a huge way we raise money. So our goal this year is $500,000, and we are building a hospital in, uh, in, in right near Mosul, Iraq. And so uh, women and kids go to this hospital, or will once we build it, who've been displaced by ISIS. Their husbands, their families have been killed. They've been driven out of villages by ISIS. And so we're going to build a hospital to take care of them. It costs $500,000 thousand dollars so instead of just doing part of one and uh, we're going to do the whole thing right so we're very excited about that and so that's on us to be generous to give toward that vision and so uh yeah we need uh those sponsorships filled and so if you got that company and you're kind of waiting out to figure out what you're going to do get those in uh this week so that we can uh, move on and uh, and move forward to august 31st really excited about it if you got a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 20. Uh, that's where we are. And uh, last week, uh, I was away, and Vin, our church planter from the church that we're going to plant in Calgary, a village location in Calgary, was here, shared with you, did an awesome job. He felt very loved by you, so thank you for being a loving church. He's part of our family now, so make sure you support him, love on him. Really exciting to be doing that. We don't have a date for that yet, but if you guys feel called to go to Calgary and move there and be with Vin, awesome. We want to be uh, that as a church. We want to hear the call of God to go wherever he calls us, and so we're really excited about that. But Matthew chapter 20, uh, he, uh, Vin unpacked verse 17 to 19, so I'm going to pick it up in verse 20, and there's a bunch of stuff in this text that I want us to reflect on uh, for a few minutes. And so verse 20 of Matthew 20 says this, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, this is Jesus, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. So what she's asking is uh, Jews understood that there was like a present day, like, like if you talk to our grandparents, there was kind of the, the way they broke up the world was like before the war and after the war, right? Before World War II started, after World War II started. To Jews, it was before the kingdom came and after the kingdom came. The world was a disaster. It was filled with destruction and poverty and awfulness and evil. And yet one day God is going to bring about his kingdom. And one thing that you and I have to understand is that when Jesus 
came, what, part of what he was trying to say was, I'm bringing the kingdom in now, in the present. That's why he told us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not some, just something off in the future. Man, I hope God moves and works someday to actually defeat evil and sin. He has done this in the person and the work of Jesus. But what she's asking is, when that time comes, because she doesn't totally understand that Jesus is saying, there's a piece of the kingdom that's now, and then there's a piece not yet. She's saying, when that time comes, can my two sons sit at your right and your left? Can they have kind of some authority? Can they be like your, you know, your, the, the second and third in command of the kingdom? Now, here's the thing. Before we think this is a dumb question, let's just zone in on a couple of things. The first one is, she says, I love this, underline this, kneeling before him. Like, let's just understand the posture of this woman before Jesus, that literally the world is divided up between two kinds of people. People who have bowed in knee to Jesus and people who haven't. And this room is divided up. And these locations are divided up between people who've, who've knelt before Jesus and said, you get to be in control of my life. You get to be in control of my money, of my sex life, of my worldview, of the way that I deal with, with uh, my family. Either I kneel before you, Jesus, and let you be in total control or I'm in total control. That's the only two things. There's the only two camps to be a part of. And there comes a point in our life when what the Bible constantly calls us to do is, is come to a place where you actually kneel before Jesus, where you don't, you don't stay in this middle ground. You actually come before him and say, you get the authority in everything about my life. I uh, preached this past weekend down in California at this church, and, uh, and it was just such an honor to be able to preach down this great family. But when I, when I spoke, I had the opportunity over five services to literally look at the people and say, listen, it's not good enough down here on your July 4th weekend to sit around and just watch me preach and go, well, okay, that was great, and go home. There's decisions to be made in this room. Some of you who already follow Jesus, you're not kneeling before him where he has absolute control and authority over every aspect of your life. And some of you actually need to make a decision to follow Jesus because you never have. And if that's you, you need to actually think about, is God speaking to you? And there's people who then, they came up after and they're like, hey, if you've made a decision for Jesus, go over to this table. And there was a bunch of people who went over and they said, because I was forced to make a decision about what I was going to do with all of this information, with this worldview of, am I going to live without God or with God? And so there's these moments in our life, and maybe today's that day for some of you, where we have have to decide, am I going to bow a knee to Jesus or not? And so this is what she does, kneeling before him, and then she has this, Jesus looks to her in verse 21 and says this, what do you want? I love this question because it's very unique in the marketplace of ideas that the God of the universe would look to a human being and say, what do you want? This is how much he cares about you and me. This is how much he cares about our hearts. He's not just some disconnected, deistic version of God. God, who just is mechanically, he, he enters into our world and goes, what do you want? Like a good father would sit and look at his kids and say, what do you want? I, well, I took Sienna with me down to California to travel, and I was constantly looking at her saying, what do you want? What do you want to do? What would you like? And then they actually backstage, she was kind of living the, the preacher kid's dream this past week. And I was trying to kind of be like, okay, honey, don't get used to this. All right. Because they were like, would you like a, you're back here and your, your daddy's out there. Would you like a snow cone? And she's like, duh. What do you think a kid who's 10, 11 years old is going to answer that question? Yes, she wants a snow cone, fool. So I came back and she's like, mm -hmm. I'm like, what is that? She's like, I don't know, snow 
snow cone. I'm like, okay, none of that. And then I went back out and someone else walked in like, would you like a nice little frosty with chocolate and whipped cream? She's like, uh, how long is he out there for? Yeah, I'll take I'll take one of those, maybe two, two. All right, and I come back and she's like, she's hopped up. I'm like, what are you doing? All right, this is a good father looks to the kids and goes, what do you, what do you want? What are you saying to me? If we're in relationship together, I'm actually entering in, humbling myself and saying, what are, what are you wanting? And so he's listening to your heart. And this is where you and I have to understand the whole idea of prayer is not some systematized thing where you have to be some mechanical robot and you can only say the right things or God doesn't hear you. What do you want? Talk to me. I'm, I'm a good father. I want to hear from you. I actually care about your life. I want to know what you think about this. I want you to just rhyme off about stuff about how you're feeling. Listen, those of you who are afraid to tell God about your anger and your fears and your frustrations... Don't be. Read the Psalms. He's constantly saying the Psalms read like some schizophrenic thing where one minute you read like Psalm 70 or something and he's like, Lord, I wouldn't want to be in any other presence than yours. No matter what happens in my life, you are the ultimate person and glory in my life and I want to see or touch no one else and talk to no one else. Literally the next Psalm is, I hate you, never talk to me again. You let some bad stuff happen. I'm going away. And it's like this all over the place. This is who David, this is who the Psalms were. And they weren't afraid of it. And some of you are. You're afraid to go, God, I don't understand why this is happening in my marriage right now. I don't understand why my finances are a disaster right now. I don't understand why I got this diagnosis right now. You're screaming out. He's going, what do you want? What do you want to say to me? What's your heart? How do you, how are you feeling about let's, let's We're in relationship. We're walking together. This is the beauty of the gospel is in Christianity, you get a God who enters in and cares and asks the question that in every other religion, it's just disconnected. You don't get to, they're not asking you the gods or, or God in a unitarian, but they're not asking you this question. And so if we understand that in Jesus, we actually get to see the God who's been a mystery, who's been the one behind the veil for, 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 for history, and then Jesus shows up and says, let me explain, let me exegete God to you. Then we see that God is the one who says, what do you want? And then what we see is we see a mother. She says, let these two sons of mine sit at your left and your right. Now, let's just, let's just sit here for a second, because what you get is this strong Here's what the Bible lays out for women. All right? People misunderstand the biblical idea, and they think that women are supposed to be sitting at home, quiet, just keeping house, and that's what the Bible lays out for people. And here, over and over, we go, man, you're not reading the text. The text has strong, courageous women who fight for their families. And how many of us, even still today, it's their mother or their grandmother who had the spiritual leadership in their home to actually lead them to Jesus. It was their mother that had the massive influence. Now, I do believe the Bible lays out that at the home, the father is supposed to be the head of the household, the spiritual leader, sacrificing, taking the responsibility for his house, on his knees, loving his family, sacrificing for his family, leading his family. But this isn't a situation where it's like, and the wife just sits in. This is strong womanhood. This is, this is God holding Eve accountable. This is calling Sarah to big things, Esther to big things, Mary to big things. God does not look out at women and go, okay, just have your quiet spot and don't have any influence and don't have any impact. These are the leaders, the massive influencers in our lives 
are often the women of our lives. And here's a mother, and she's playing this kind of mother bear role. Like, like moms get jacked up about their kids, and they do so. I mean, we're a part of this like swim club thing. And this week, my youngest daughter, Bella, my wife had signed her up to get in these classes, and there was a waiting list. And so they couldn't get in. So my wife said, oh, don't, don't worry, I'll figure this out. I'm like, I don't know, okay. So she shows up the next morning. She's like, hey, I need uh, my kid on this, uh, in this class. And they're like, sorry, she's not on the list. She goes, oh, she's on the list. So she goes in, she's like, I want my daughter on the list. And they're like, um, okay, but there's a few people who didn't show up. She's like, put her on the list. She's gonna go to this class. So she went to the class once. Then she went twice. Third time she shows up, she's like, no, she's still not on the list. She's still on the waiting list. My wife's like, she's already been to this class twice. You will keep her in this class. They're like, no. So she goes in, they're like, sorry, she can't go on it. There's other people on this list. And Aaron's like, okay, those kids have not been to this class. True? And they're like, they have not been here yet. She goes, okay, so remove them and put my daughter in because she's already been here. Those kids can go a different day. And they're like, okay, ma'am. All right, this is jacked up she-bear mom. All right, and that's what happens is we got, this is what women, they love their kids so much. They want to fight for their kids emotionally, physically, spiritually, they will do anything for their kids at this mind-boggling level where even this woman is coming to Jesus and saying, you see my two sons here? My two sons, I want them to be more important than everybody else. This is what happens. I was reading a guy named John Sowers. He's got a book called The Heroic Path. He tells the story of the strong, courageous influence of women in his life, moms and grandmas. And he tells this story. It takes a minute to read it, but I just thought this is a fascinating picture of this woman who in this gospel is fighting for her kids. He says, my mom knew I loved the Boston Red Sox growing up, so sometimes we went to Arlington, Texas to watch them play the Rangers. We always stayed in the team hotel. Some of the players were really cool, and they would let me carry their bats for them. And to a 12-year-old kid, that was a dream. And then he says, another time I saw Roger Clemens leaving the team hotel to play golf. Starting pitchers sometimes play golf in the morning on a day off. And Roger's one of the best pitchers in baseball history. Holds a single game strikeout record. 20, won seven Cy Young Awards. Went to the All-Star 11 times in two World Series. And he says, so when I saw Roger Clemens in the team hotel in Arlington, I'm 12 years old. It was no small task to ask him for an autograph because he was the toughest pitcher in baseball. He would even fight other men and throw balls at them without even thinking about it. I felt like I was jumping into a shark tank. Once I started, there was no going back. I walked up to him, and with all the bravery I could muster, I stuttered, Mr. Clemens, would you please sign my baseball? No way, kid, he snapped. I've already signed for you. Crushed. I couldn't ask him again. He hadn't signed for me, but he thought he had. So I hung my head, made my slow retreat back into the hotel lobby, crawled under the rug, and lay there like a dead thing. A few minutes later, my mom came down, and could tell I was distraught. What's wrong, she asked. Well, Roger Clemens is right there, and when I asked for an autograph, he griped and told me he already signed my baseball. Mom grabbed the baseball out of my hand, walked outside where Clemens was to get into a limo. I could hear her voice from inside the lobby. Mr. Clemens, she said. He turned around, towering over her, a full foot, 230 pounds of lean, mean Texan, but 
It's unflappable. Roger, you said you already signed for my son, and you didn't. I would be grateful if you would sign this baseball. You should have seen his body language. He was backing up, trying to get away from her. Here was the scariest and meanest pitcher in baseball history. The guy who threw a bat at Mike Piazza, and he was retreating from my mom. He was recoiling from a small southern woman named Georgia. I still have that autograph. We've been raised by heroic moms and grandmoms. That's what John Sower says. This is an experience of so many people in this room that the ones who fight for us are the women. And what I, I'm surrounded by beautiful godly women. My own wife at home with three daughters, she right now has been the, the, the biggest spiritual influence over my daughters, has been my wife, not me, even though I'm the pastor. Oh, gather around, kids. I shall give you the theological training you need. It's my wife. They watch her. How is she godly? How is she a woman? How does she carry herself? Who is she? And she's strong. And she fights for my girls in the way that this woman is fighting for her kids. And so this woman comes and she says, hey, these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. You know, the Bible over and over again uses strong, like Proverbs 31 has all this language about what women are to do and who they're to be. But, and we kind of read it and we think it's quaint and cute, but the reality is, is it's constant military language. This is what scholars tell us, Hebrew scholars. If you read through Proverbs 31, there's this one point where it calls the woman a, a noble woman. And, and uh, Old Testament scholars say it's the word child. Child, and literally it means noble, like, like David's men of valor. Uh, later on in Proverbs 31, it says uh, that she buys, and the Hebrew word for buying, like stuff, is she hunts out prey and she brings it back. Like that's the she bear of spiritual life that women can be. Proverbs 31 is like, she buys nice things. That's so nice. It's like, no, she hunts out prey kills it and drags it back, right? That's the image of a woman. Later on in Proverbs 31, it says she puts on clothes. Literally in the Hebrew, it's, it's, um, it says that she girds her loins with strength. Like this is the image. It's all military language, right? It's language saying this woman is in the midst of a war. Women, you've got to understand that. You're going to be this massive influence culturally, that don't shy away from that. The leaders, influencers among us, the things that God has called you to do. And so she says, can you let these sons of mine actually have this kind of influence on your right and your left in your kingdom? Verse 22, look at this. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. I love that. Because he looks at her and it's fascinating. He actually says, you don't, you don't actually uh, know. Uh, you, can't, you don't get to control the universe. And in fact, his answer goes on to be, he says, uh, you don't know what you're asking. Uh, the rest of verse 22, are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? He's literally looking at them and he's saying, the answer to your question is uh, rhetorically no. Which is fascinating because we think that God's answer to our prayers should always be yes because we've got better ideas. And he looks at her and says, you don't even know what you're asking. When you pray that prayer, do you understand that it is my option and my right to actually say no 
to the questions and the things that you're requesting because I'm God. But underneath this idea of her prayer life is this, is this fascinating thing that realize, even though she's a mom, even though she's powerful, even though she has influence, she still, listen to me, recognizes that the most important thing she can do for her two sons is bring them closer to Jesus. This is what's important for every single one in here. The most important thing about your life is to figure out a way where if you aren't orbiting closely around Jesus, that you get very close to him. And here's why. Because oftentimes the mistake you and I make is we, we constantly talk about and try to be like Jesus. I was reading a guy named Gordon Smith the other day. He wrote a, he wrote a great book, um, and he, he says this in it. Um, it is very important to stress that the heart and soul of the Christian existence, listen to me, is not ultimately about being Christ-like. However much that might be a good thing. Listen, it is rather that we would be united with Christ. So much contemporary reflection on the Christian life speaks of discipleship as becoming more and more like Jesus. There are two potential problems viewing this Christ-likeness as the Christian ideal and the goal of the church. On the one hand, this is a problematic because Christ-likeness is actually derivative of something else, namely union with Christ. And to pursue it on its own actually distracts us from the true goal of the Christian life. Because here's the thing, you listen, the reason orbiting, getting closer to Jesus, which is what this woman does and what she does with her two sons, let's get close to Jesus. I know I'm a strong woman, but I don't have the answers. So let's bring you to Jesus. Let's get you close to him, so close that I want you on his right and left forever. The reason I want that is because the goal of my life is union with Christ. Because if you just try to be like Jesus, it's not going to work. Because here's the problem. If all I do is get up and tell you, be like Jesus, be like Jesus, be like Jesus, here's going to be the problem. You're, it's going to be a burden for you. It's going to end up just being religion for you. Here's the reality. You need Jesus first in order to be like Jesus. You can't just be like Jesus without being close to Jesus because you don't have the power. You can't actually do it. All it's going to do is burden you down. Some of you are trying to, to defeat lust in your life. I got to be like Jesus. I don't want to lust after girls. It's summer. It's hard in summer. You're walking around everywhere. You're like, oh my goodness, I got to try to be like Jesus. I got to try to be like Jesus. But the problem is, is you're not pushing closer to Jesus in order to get that power. So all you're doing is burdening yourself down and you're back into religion mode. You're back into growing up in a church to say, just be like Jesus, be like this, be like that. And it's crushing you. That should not be your goal. That's derivative. That's something that comes out of an earlier goal, which is, okay, I don't have to, I don't want to be like Jesus. I got to get close to Jesus. Then I become like Jesus. You can't skip that step. And that's what she's doing. She's saying, listen, here's the other level of what she's doing. She, she's looking at her kids saying, you know what the most important thing is? That you get close to this man. Because here's the thing, kids, and this is, what's, this is what's crazy, and every single parent in here has got to embrace this. We tend to function like we're the most important person in our kids' lives. And here's the problem with that. One day, you're going to die. And you'll be gone. And you're going to leave your kid vicariously living their faith out through you, 
not having a faith of their own. The person you need to fight to get your kids to love is not you, but Jesus. Because even when you're dead and gone, he remains. He is the hope of your kid. Not having a good family time, not building sentimental memories, not going up to the cabin every other week because I just got to build into my kid. You could do that every single weekend for the rest of your life and die and leave your kid without an understanding of their need for Jesus to connect to the God of the universe that transcends death, that will take care of them when you're gone. That's what this mother understood. I got to get my kids to love Jesus more than they love me. And so she says, can you please do this? Now, look at Jesus' response. You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? So, so here's what his answer is. This is very encouraging for all of us in this room. He's actually referring to the cup of suffering that he's about to go through. So Jesus brings up and says, oh, you want to you wanna become a Christian. All right, so if you want to become a Christian, here's where I'm going to start. I'm not going to start with, so just say these three things. Say this little incantation. Add Jesus to your already, you know, whatever worldview you have. Come forward, say a prayer, a magic prayer, and move on with your life. Great, we're happy. Let's check it off. We got another person to accept Christ. That's not actually how he starts. When they show a bit of interest toward coming to him and having union with him, he goes, oh, here's the thing. There's going to be crazy amounts of suffering. Like the opposite of the prosperity gospel. Come to Jesus and he'll take care of your life. You'll have a nice car. You'll have a nice home. You'll never get sick. You'll get promotions at work. Come on, follow God and he'll... The opposite. He comes out of the gate and goes, dead, 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 dead. you're going to have a cup of suffering. That's what's going to take place in your life. You still want it? You still want this? You can take it if you want it. I mean, Jesus is like, like in this moment, the worst evangelist. It's like, please, show me the way to become a Christian. He's like, um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. I don't know. What, you, okay, you really? Oh, I don't know if you can handle it, bro. I just don't know if you're strong enough. Yeah, I don't know. I just don't know if you're courageous enough. I don't know. Are you sure? It's going to be a lot of suffering. It's fascinating. The true New Testament picture of discipleship, suffering, Philippians 1. Not that I might just share in the resurrection, but that I might share in your sufferings. That's insane. He's saying that part of the Christian life is you're going to have to drink a cup of suffering in your life. That you're not going to be insulated from finance problems. You're not going to be insulated from your family turning on you, your friends turning on you, from your marriage getting difficult. You're not going to be insulated and protected from these things. Life is going to happen to you because the brokenness of the world has not been wrapped up yet. And you're going to get ground by the world around you, just like Jesus is about to. He's about to go and the world is going to crush him. And he's saying, that's... That's the model of discipleship I want to lay down. For all of you who are interested in this, just understand that suffering is part of this, that you don't get resurrection without cross. And so he says, um, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And then I love this. Listen to what they say. Uh, like little sassy guys. They said to him, underline this, the end of verse 22, we are able. Love that. 
So Jesus goes, are you able to do this, bros? And then he goes to walk away. They're like, yeah, we can do that. And he's like, whoa, okay, interesting. So I actually put the bar high. And see, this is, what's, this is why at Village we love to put the bar of discipleship high. Right? People said, oh, your church plan's not going to work. You know, way back in the day, right? Because Canadians, they need to be talked to in soft pear-shaped tones. And you need to be conversational. And you got to kind of have some dialogue with them. And, and you just kind of, you get up and you like yell at everybody. And you're just preaching all the time. Like, you need to just teach. You need to be dialogical because they, they're going to be offended. You know, and so we're like, well, no. The only plan is you just keep preaching verse by verse through the Bible. And, and so what would happen is, we just offend someone and they go, oh my gosh, that's so offensive. I gotta bring my friend, right? And they just go get their friend and they, and this is what began to happen is the offense of the gospel, right? Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the idea that when the gospel gets laid down, when the message that God is love and he gave his son and he took the wrath of God on himself and Jesus died for sin and rose again for salvation, that sometimes when that message goes out, that for some people, it's the smell of life, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. But for other people, it's the smell of death and offense. So much so that the scandal, which is literally the Greek word scandalon of the gospel, that people stumble over it as to not get up. Some people, that's what the gospel does. But other people, they stumble over it and they get up and they go, I need new life. I need something. And this is what these guys, he puts the scandal out. This is why we raise the bar so high. Are you able to take this kind of cost of your life? And many of you have said, I am. And you've stood up. Like, I love that spirit. That's the kind of spirit we should all have. Don't just sit back, passive Canadian. Stand up and go, yeah, I can take that challenge. God's laying down a massive challenge. I want you to sacrifice this. I want you to think through finances like this. we got a big mission coming up. What are you going to do about it? And instead of going, oh, I don't know if I'm... It's okay, I can stand up to the challenge that Jesus is laying down. Jesus tries to make it harder. I bounce back and go, I can meet that challenge. That's the spirit of Village Church. That's why when people come up, they're like, why are you bothering with all this stuff? You're busy enough. It's like because Jesus has laid down a challenge that we could never accomplish if it's just us. But if he comes through, something magical happens. And so he, they say, we are able. I just underline, that's, that's just like, that's the spirit. We are able. And so he says, you will drink my cup. And they're like, wait, what? Hold on. I thought you said we weren't going to. Now he flips and goes, oh yeah, you will. You will suffer. You will get martyred. You will die. You will actually suffer you know, similar to what I'm going through on a physical level, that's going to actually happen to you because you follow me. And they're like, well, oh, okay. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, let's just stop there because the skeptics in the room, this is why historians actually, and this is what's fascinating, um, they look at the Bible and, and, you know, skeptics come in and they say, the Bible was made up by people. All right, so a bunch of people came together and made up Christianity because they wanted to make up a religion. 
And so they wrote Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and, and they wrote these things, and they said, okay, here's some stories about Jesus. He walks on water. He raises dead people. Now we create a religion, and everyone's going to follow him. Historians actually come in, and they go, you know what's fascinating and why we actually trust these? These are the most trusted documents in antiquity is because of verses like this. Because what Jesus says, listen to what he just said. I don't have the power to do that. Now, hold on a sec. So this is what one scholar calls counterproductive content. That if you're making up a religion, and if you've argued for 20 chapters that this, this man is, is not just a man, but he's God. You've tried to argue that for 20 straight chapters. He walks on water. He feeds people out of nothing. He's a miracle baby. He didn't even have a father. All of these, he's God. And you're doing that for 20 chapters. Then you get to chapter 20. Here's what you don't put in. You edit out the story where he doesn't know stuff. And he doesn't have the power to do stuff. Right? Later on, they're going to come to him. They're going to be like, hey, Jesus, we're just wanting... Uh, if you're going to go away, when are you coming back? And Jesus goes, I don't know. Only the Father knows the time of my coming. They're like, what? listen, that's, don't put that story in. It's just going to confuse everybody. So you're saying you're God. Yep. So you're all-knowing, 100%. All-powerful, 100%. Okay, when are you coming back? No idea. That's counterproductive to the point of Matthew. Now they're saying, so you're all powerful, right? Yeah, I can do anything. I created the cosmos from nothing, from scratch. I just went stars. That was me. Okay, can I ask you a question? Can you put these two dudes just on your right and your left? Oh, I got no power to do that. Why would you put that in there? Why in a couple chapters are you going to have Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thought he, you just argued for 26, 27 chapters that he was God. Why is he talking to himself? And why is he forsaking himself? Don't put in things that are going to confuse everybody. And historians come in and they go, do you know what? That's why we trust these documents. Because they weren't whitewashed. Because if they were, they would have taken these lines out. Because they don't want to confuse their readers. But they're there. And so historians say the reason they're there is because what this reeks of is that this is just how it happened. If they were whitewashing it, delete that one. Delete that time in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus walks into a village after telling everybody he's God. And they say, hey, can you heal these people? And the text literally says he could not heal them because of their lack of faith. What do you mean could not? You made those people, I thought. Oh, yeah, I crafted those things together in their mama's womb. All right, heal them. Can't. Hands are tied. What? Delete it. And historians go, no, man, this does not reek like whitewash at all. This is just the tension, and it's retained because these documents are real. And that's why it's the most trusted document in, in antiquity. Out of all of the documents, the religious books, everything, historians go, this is legit. We've put this under the massive scrutiny. And th these tensions exist because it's just what happened. It's what the writers saw. And so he looks at them and he says, it's not mine to grant this kind of authority, this right and this left. See, here's what we got to understand. Here's a deep question that we all have to ask ourselves that this text is just stirring in, in, in my heart, even about as I look in the mirror of my own life. 
we can all admit Jesus Christ is a, um, he's a compelling figure. Like he's an interesting guy. So if you're orbiting around him, like you come to our church, let's say every week, or you're starting to investigate Christianity. Great, awesome. You go to community group, you pray, you do your devos, you read the Bible, you listen to worship songs. Amazing. That's good. Here's, here's kind of the deep question that this text, that's rumbling under the surface of this text. Listen to me. Why? See, we, we pat people on the back for any kind of interest in Jesus. This guy got interested in Jesus. He talked to me about Jesus. And we go, woohoo! We're excited! But this text goes, let's ask a deeper question. What's your motive? What was the motive of this woman coming close to Jesus and trying to get her sons close to him so that they would have power? Do you know how corrupt that is? Can they sit at your right ear? How about you just like, is it okay if you save them? Is it okay if like they get to come into the kingdom and you deal with their sin? How about like baseline accomplishment? What is her motive? It's not just to have life. It's so that their kids have authority and power in some messed up way in the kingdom of God. What's the reason behind the reason that you're here right now? Question that for a second. You might follow Jesus. This story goes, what's your motive? Not just enough to be interested in him. There's lots of people interested in him. Why? Is it for some kind of benefit for you? Maybe it's good for your business that you come to village. Maybe it's just good for your, your family or it makes you feel good about yourself. Why are you getting close to him? Why are you orbiting around him? There are different answers to this question represented in every seed in here. And you got to ask the Lord, man, what, what is mine? Like, is it pure? See, you look at the next story, it's fascinating. Look up at, uh, you look up verse 21. He looks to her and he says, what do you want? What do you want? That's the question. You know what the question of the next story is? We'll deal with next week. You know what it is? Verse 32, Jesus sees a couple blind guys. Stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? In Mark, it's actually the same exact question. He asks the woman, what do you want me to do for you? He looks at these blind guys and says, what do you want me to do for you? And their answer is, Lord, open our eyes. There's some people, the answer to the question is, what do you want me to do for you? I want power. I want authority. I want better things. I want a better life. I want not to suffer. I want a better business. I want a better family. And for some people, it's, I just want to see, man. I just want to know. I want like, like this, I want this bear. I just want to know you. I want a taste of you. I want to grow in you. I want to get close to you, union with you. I want to abide in you so that I become more like you. So let's ask this question of ourselves before I pray for us. What is the motive of you getting close to Jesus and putting your faith in Jesus? Is it pure? Is it right? Or is there some other benefit that you're looking for that's not of him? It's a worldly thing that you're just clamoring after. That's what this story raises. What is our motivation for believing in him? Father, my prayer 
across every location today is that we are we have the courage to actually ask that deeper question and you would answer it clearly in our minds right now and if it's not a, a pure motivation for why we're with you why we love you why we believe in you then you would burn it away that for the people in this room for some of us in this room the main issue is actually just to get close to you for the first time and that that motive would be I want to know God. I want to experience the forgiveness of sin and the freedom that the cross and the resurrection bring into a life when we walk away from sin and believe in Christ, that that motive would be pure. But sometimes over the years, our motives change and get corroded. And what's fresh in my mind right now are memories of me as a 17-year-old kid. So just passionate for Jesus and it was pure man it was it was just about you and telling others about you so that they may experience you and over the years it gets clouded with stuff and life burn that away from my mind and my heart let me go back to the first love to the reason I'm here to begin with and let every person here go back in their mind what was that original reason? Make it pure again. Sift through our motives. And let us be able to be in you, pure in heart. Because as you say, blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Okay, guys, thank you so much for being with us across our locations. We will see you next week. Thanks so much.